Okay, so Mark 8. I've been trying to uh, explain in, in the previous talk so far on Mark that the Gospel records are a, a, a transcript, as I've called them, of the Gospel which people like Mark or Matthew or Luke or John preached. After Jesus had died, they went around preaching and telling people what had actually uh, been, been said by Jesus and what had happened. <clears throat> and this was later written down under inspiration um, as the Gospels. And in that sense, if you want to know what is the Gospel, well, you read one of the Gospels. And they're clearly very centered on, on Jesus as a person. And they're written in such a way as to get us to, as it were, put ourselves behind Jesus and follow him in the, the life that he lived and in the, the pattern of events that there was in his life and to, as it were, be caught up in being led by him towards Jerusalem, towards the cross and thereby to the resurrection and thereby to, to the life eternal. And the Gospels are written with a lot of emphasis upon the, the weakness and the failures of the disciples. And don't forget, these are, uh, as I've said, a, a kind of a transcript of the message which those disciples themselves preached. So they were going around telling everybody, look, how dumb we were. We didn't get it. Um, we didn't understand the obvious. We failed to perceive. We failed uh, in so many ways. We just didn't get it. But by the Lord's grace, we had a basic loyalty to him, and he patiently worked with us. And here we are today telling you the message. And I think it was that willingness to show chinks in their own armor, that willingness to accept their own uh, weakness and fallibility, which was so attractive to their audiences. Because people are sick and tired of slick evangelists trying to hold themselves up as, as perfect examples, etc., uh, when we know that everyone has feet made of clay. And it was, I think, in these recognitions that the disciples made that they became so attractive and compelling to their audience. And so it will be with us that in all our preaching we are building bridges, as I see it, with people. And we are seeking out points of, of uh, continuity between them and us, points of similarity. And it's in human failure that people click, as it were, and they feel so much more at home and are not threatened. Now, here in Mark 8, verse, verse 4, um, y you've got the, uh, the record of, of the feeding of the, of the crowd and how the disciples are, are framed as not having the compassion on the multitude which Jesus had. And in Mark 8, verse 4, in the uh, English texts, it reads, From whence shall we get bread here in the wilderness? And yet that is actually a quotation from Exodus 16, verse 3 in the Septuagint, where a faithless Israel asked the same of Moses. From whence shall we get bread here in the wilderness? Now the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, was the, the common Bible, as it were, that people, that ordinary people were used to in the first century. Now, would they really, would they really have just quoted those very words that Israel said in the wilderness uh, back to Jesus? I'm not sure they would have purposefully done that. But I think that when Mark came to write up this record under inspiration, he chose 
or God chose, or he chose in a sense, um, to use those very words as if to highlight the fact that we were so weak, we were just like Israel in the wilderness, worried about however we're going to get uh, food to live on here in the wilderness. And so I think that they, they did that, or Mark did this under inspiration, but it was also, I suggest, his choice um, to highlight that fact, to highlight that, look, just look at us, we who are preaching to you, how dumb we were, we were just like Israel in the wilderness. And so, as you go through the, uh, the records, you see that more and more. Uh, in my little book on Peter, I, I gave a, a number of reasons for believing that the Gospel of Mark is actually Peter's Gospel. And I won't bore you with the reasons. You can, uh, that can be your homework to go and uh, look that one up. But um, what's interesting in the Gospel of Mark, that although it's the shortest Gospel, there is more emphasis on the failures of Peter in terms of numbers of verses uh, in, in Mark's Gospel than in any other. And here in Mark 8, when you come down to 29, uh, when Jesus says, whom, whom do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, You are the Christ. Now, in the other records, it sort of records Jesus sort of saying, Well, well done, Peter. Good for you. Um, flesh and blood didn't re reveal this unto you. But that... Uh, praise, if you like, that commendation of Peter is absent here in Mark. It's as if Peter is putting himself down all the time. And when you come to the records of the denials, as I say, although Mark is the shortest gospel, it normally summarizes things, you've got more detail about the denials of Jesus in Mark than you have in any other of, of the gospels. So then, we're being all the time encouraged to put ourselves, as it were, behind the Lord Jesus and, and follow him as they did. And I think you see this again very clearly in um, verse 31, 32 and onwards, where Jesus teaches them how the Son of Man must suffer many things and, and be killed and after three days rise again. And t Peter takes him, verse 32, and begins to rebuke him. And 33, but when Jesus had turned about, he turned round. So Peter's standing behind him. He turns around and rebukes Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. Now, Peter was walking behind Jesus because Jesus has to turn round and say this to him. But what he's saying is, Peter, you're walking behind me physically, but really get behind me. If you're going to really walk behind me, you've got to accept the message of the cross. And really, I think psychologically, the reason why Peter did not want Jesus to go and die on the cross was because he realized that he was a follower of Jesus and that that therefore required of him that he also would follow Jesus to the end, to crucifixion. And he didn't want that. And so he didn't want there to be this emphasis uh, by Jesus upon his own death. He actually didn't want Jesus to die because of what it uh, demanded from him. And it can be the same with us. I notice in myself a distinct uh, dislike of reading the crucifixion records. 
I read them per year, I don't know, probably at least ten times. And yet each time I kind of think, yeah, I know all this. Yes, 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 this is going to happen, yes, well, we know that, yes, yes, yes. And I want to skate over it, and I might justify myself by saying, oh, it's so terrible, reading about the, uh, the, the suffering and the death of the Lord I love. But I wonder if there is not a deeper reason why I don't like it. And that deeper reason, I suspect, is because we are all asked to pick up his cross and to follow him. And we don't want to do that. Uh, we would rather that not be the case. And this is why Jesus goes on in 34. He, he says to everybody, look, whoever will come after me and come after me. This is the same uh, Greek as is in 33. Get behind me walk behind me he says whoever is really going to walk behind me must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me follow me where to to crucifixion because he's inviting them to see him as a criminal on his last walk to the cross and he's saying you've got to walk behind me and whoever's thinking of saving his life of getting out of this is going to lose it but if you lose your life for my sake and the gospels you will save it and this is a powerful, I think, uh, message and exhortation to us who maybe are like Peter, uh, physically walking behind Jesus, uh, saying that, yes, I'm a disciple, I'm a follower of, of Jesus, when, in fact, it demands an awful lot from us. And, you know, it is not just a question of externally, physically following, of calling yourself a Christian, of going to church, of appearing in the eyes of others to, yes, definitely be a follower of him, it actually demands real, personal, painful self-sacrifice. And in incidentally, notice how he talks in verse 35, whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels, he parallels himself with the Gospel. So, as I said earlier, the Gospel, the good news, is essentially about Jesus. And further in verse 38, you've got a parallel to that my sake and the Gospels when he talks about me and my words. So then, my sake is me, and the Gospels' sake is my words. So then, the words of Jesus are the Gospel, are the good news. And the rest, you know, Paul's letters, etc., is interpretation, I would say, and it's not to say that it's any less important, not at all. But my, my point is that the gospel is essentially the message of Jesus, and I encourage us to uh, read and reread the gospels constantly, whatever Bible reading plan we're using, and I, as you know, I do encourage people to use the, uh, the Bible Companion or uh, some sort of reading plan so that we have a regime uh, to our Bible reading and we're not just uh, wandering all over the place and reading what we fancy reading um, I suggest that in addition to that we always read something of the Gospels every day because he is the one that we should be focused upon so then the disciples were walking behind Jesus and I said a few talks ago about Mark that this is quite a common uh, image in Mark and we are being encouraged to see ourselves as part of that journey 
that is going on up to, up to Jerusalem to death. And as we know, as they maybe didn't realize, but as we know, not only to death, but to resurrection and finally to, to glory and eternal life. Now, as I say, all the time, Jesus is being uh, framed here as the one who knew exactly what he was doing, was teaching crystal clear about his death and resurrection, and the disciples are framed as really not getting it. And not only about the crucifixion, but, he says from 19 to 21, when I uh, broke five loaves among five thousand, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? I said, twelve, seven among four thousand, how many baskets? Seven. Twenty-one, how is it that you did not understand? Now, if you look at um, the number of questions that Jesus uh, uses in the Gospels, it's a huge, a huge number. And, uh, in fact, just in that little section there, in, in Mark, uh, from let's say from 17 down to 21, uh, or 17 to 20, yeah, 21, uh, Jesus fires seven questions in quick succession. And in John's Gospel, there's a total of 161 questions. Jesus was very clearly trying to teach his disciples through the form of questions <clears throat> and it's the same today with us that all the time <clears throat> the Jesus whom we know and love because of the pages of the Gospels is the one who is relentlessly asking relentlessly probing into our lives and we, we don't like it none of us like having to put up with sort of quick fire questions all the time and so it was I, I think here with, uh, with Jesus and we are, of course, to, uh, as I say, to have that as the, the basis of our witness to others. Our own confession of weakness, our own experience of failure, of forgiveness, of acceptance. And it seems to me <clears throat> that we can easily, however, misunderstand 38. Whoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father. <clears throat> we can think that that applies, and I thought for many years that that applied to, you know, being kind of shy about uh, turning a conversation round to talk about the Gospel. And uh, we can uh, act like we're just any other person I I in the world. But... Um, it, it may, you know, have relevance to that, but what made me start to wonder about whether that is really what he meant was if you go back to verse 30, and it's not just verse 30, it's actually quite, uh, quite commonly um, in the Gospels that he says, don't tell anyone about me. But then he says, and whoever is going to be ashamed of me and of my words in this generation, that's the generation that he was talking to there in the time of the disciples, I will be ashamed of him. But he said, I don't want you to go and tell other people about me at this time. So I wonder, let's say at least, that the primary meaning of these words to the first hearers, that's the disciples, was that he was asking them not specifically to go and evangelize at that time, in this uh, context, apart from when he told them to, 
but rather does it refer to the need to live a life according to his word and according to the gospel, which will lead us to be embarrassed or shamed in the eyes of others. Now, Peter, and I've suggested that Mark's gospel is in fact Peter's gospel, I think Peter refers to this incident in 1 Peter 4.16, where he says, If any man suffer as a follower of Christ, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God. Let him not be ashamed. Um, because of the suffering that comes as a result of following, uh, following Christ. So then, the way of life, sorry, there is a way of life elicited by the Gospel. If you really read the Gospel records and the words of Jesus, and you really respond to them, then you are naturally going to be living a way of life which will cause uh, the potential for you to be embarrassed or ashamed in front of others. Because shame is something which only really occurs in the context of others watching. And so we can't be secret Christians, even though, as in this, uh, at this time, uh, in verse 30, don't tell any man about Jesus, uh, even if you don't evangelize, somehow you are the light of the world and that light cannot be hid. So you see what I'm saying, that they weren't at this time being asked to be evangelists, uh, going around sort of uh, publicly telling people about Jesus, and yet living a life in response to the words of Jesus was going to be publicly obvious to the point that they could feel shame in front of this sinful world in, in, in which they lived. And it's the same with us. We may sort of beat ourselves up that I am not an evangelist as I ought to be. Um, but I think this whole thing here gives us some comfort, but it's also a challenge, that even though you may not specifically open your mouth and say a word about the gospel, you may not invite someone to church, you may not um, swing conversations around to talk about the Bible or, or whatever, yet all the same, if you are really responding to his words, to the basic message of the gospel as it is in the gospel records, then it will make a difference, and somehow you will be noticed as being different to the point that you will be tempted to feel ashamed in front of others who are unbelievers. And then Jesus says, don't. Don't be ashamed, um, lest I be ashamed of you when I come in the glory of my Father. Now, still talking about uh, preaching, in verse 15, he says, Beware of the, the yeast of the Pharisees, the, the yeast of uh, Herod. And um, <clears throat> it's quite clear there that yeast is being used as a symbol for that which is unclean. And yet, elsewhere, Jesus uses that very same symbol of leaven, of yeast, as a symbol for us that we will, through the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom, be like yeast. He says, you know, it's like a woman, she takes a little bit of yeast and it leavens or raises the, the whole lump of dough. So the whole lump of humanity will be influenced by our yeast. 
But isn't that strange that Jesus would use yeast or leaven as a symbol for our witness in this world when it's also a symbol for that which is unclean? You know, you've got the other passage in 1 Corinthians 5, 6-8, where he talks about yeast as, uh, as definitely a bad symbol that must be, be gotten rid of, uh, of malice and wickedness. That's what he says leaven or yeast represents. And yet it also represents our uh, influence upon, as it were, the lump of humanity uh, through our preaching of the gospel. So then, I think the connection is, is not just that he uses... Uh, a symbol, uh, something like yeast, to represent two different things. I think it may, there may be a connection in the sense that it is our witness on the basis of our own humanity, sinfulness, weak, weakness, which is, in fact, what influences others. We are the leaven. We are the yeast. We, in all our weakness, we, in all our sinfulness, are, in fact, what actually makes connection with people in this world and which influences them towards the kingdom now maybe the last uh, thing we'll, we'll just uh, comment upon um, well uh, a, a couple more things really um, one is the fact that there in, uh, in Mark uh, 827 Sorry, uh, 37. He says, What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? And 36. What will it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own own soul or his own life? Now, looking at the uh, the parallel accounts, it's in a slightly, it's put slightly differently. Um, Where it seems to be saying, what does it right now profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? What will it profit a man at the day of judgment to gain the whole world and forfeit his own life? So it would seem that uh, he's, he put it both ways. If, uh, say, Matthew or Luke is recording one thing and Mark is recording another, I don't think there was a contradiction. I think he just may have said the same thing twice, but slightly differently. So then he's saying, look, what will it profit a a person at the day of judgment to gain the whole world, even if he's got the whole world in his pocket in this life, but he loses his, his eternal life? But he also said, and what does it right now profit a man to have the whole world in his pocket, to gain the whole world, and yet lose his his life, his eternal life? So We've got to try to see life now from the perspective of the future day of judgment. That in that day, one thing will be important, and that will be life, eternal life, and life with Jesus. And whatever one has won or gained in this life will be absolutely irrelevant. And I think the, uh, the mixing of the tenses there, putting the, the records together, is to try to bring out to us the, the fact that Really, we are to live now how we will live and feel at that final day of judgment. That in that day, one thing and only one thing will be important, and that is the life, the eternal life. 
and being and living with him and it will be kind of bizarre to say or, or to think well oh yeah but I, I had all this and I, I, I made this money and I had this house and that house and that car and uh, this expensive gadget and the rest of it even if you were to gain the whole world that would be irrelevant compared to the eternal life and if you lose your eternal life then what is you know what, what's the point of uh, all that you've, you've gained in this brief brief life these brief whatever years 70 or whatever we have in this world and so it seems to me that Jesus is, is forcing us or trying to force us to to try to make our decisions now and life is in one sense a stream of decisions uh, in the light of that ultimate reality that in that day the end point of our destiny of yours and of mine is to stand in front of Jesus realizing that absolutely nothing in this world is important apart from everlasting life apart from the life and if that is how ultimately we are going to feel that only one thing is important and that is the life and it's not what I have gained for myself in this world so that is the attitude we should have right now that the life the life with him the kind of life which we will live eternally life with him that is of paramount importance and absolutely nothing not even the gaining of the whole world uh, can compare to that and in fact the gaining of the whole world in the day of judgment will be laughable it will be something we despise and we want to rid ourselves of uh, because all we want is that life and so that is what comes down to in our attitudes now right now in this world in the stream of decisions that we face particularly in in a sort of capitalist world in which we live where a personal gain and you know how much you have got in your bank account in this uh, bond or that uh, insurance policy or whatever uh, what property you own or whether you're still renting or whatever all these kind of questions um, this is all part of the, the fallacy of gaining the whole world even if you were to gain every property in this world every car, every gadget, everything it would be nothing it would be something to be despised compared to the life eternal and so uh, you've got the story of the, the account there of the healing of the, the blind man in, in two stages and I, I wonder if uh, the two stages are to uh, bring out to us how when we're converted to Christ we start to see but we see men as trees walking we don't see clearly but it will be in the kingdom when we will see clearly I think that is the implication of 1 Corinthians 13:12, where he talks about how in that day we shall see face to face and not through a, a dark smudgy mirror uh, but we will see clearly and there's a couple of passages in Isaiah 29, 42:6. you can look them up later that, that likewise seem to associate seeing clearly and perfect vision with, with the kingdom so we see things through a glass darkly we see men as trees walking now we, we see the outline picture for example what I've just been saying that 
to uh, gain the whole world is nothing compared to the eternal life. Um, we, we see the, the truth of that in outlined terms, and yet the reality of it will only come sharply into focus when we stand there before the Day of Judgment. And I think this is one thing that I look forward to about the Kingdom, that then all the fine ideas that we perceive in, in theory will, as it were, uh, come sharply into the focus of reality. That the ideas that we so love about spirituality, righteousness, uh, cleanness of, of living and being and thinking, that suddenly it will all come wonderfully true. So then, we're going back into our lives this week, and we're to take with us the spirit of these disciples following Jesus. This particularly, I think, remember Peter, with Jesus saying to him, you know, you're walking behind me, Peter, but that's just physical. Just get behind me properly, and that means pick up your cross and follow me uh, to the end, because as he's outlined here in verse 31, yes, it, it was a going to the death, but he was going to rise again, and as he says in, in the last verse there, 38, he would come again in the glory of his Father. And that is our pattern for, for us to walk after.